Throughout church history, there have been many controversies which have caused problems in the church, resulting in groups splintering and dividing over the issues. Well, today is no different. So stay with us as we deal with a couple of the current controversies in our local churches today. for joining us on the question and answer program with our Bible teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, who for over 30 years answered the questions of his many listeners. We hope that you've joined us with an open heart and an open Bible as we hear biblical answers to some of your questions. Our first question today deals with the issue of dispensationalism, and we feel that both the question and the answer are very important, so we're going to let Dr. McGee read the question and provide his insight in response. Here now is Dr. McGee. It says something you said finally prompted me to write you, even though we have enjoyed your broadcasts for quite a while now. To come right to the point, may I say to you that we were very surprised by your disparaging and patronizing remarks about those super dispensationalists, as you call them, But I think the correct name, by the way, if I may intrude into the letter, is hyper-dispensationalist. I think that's what they're known as. But I did use that term, and I do use it, by the way. We were also disturbed about your disseminating incorrect information about them over the air. Even though we are active members of the Evangelical Free Church in San Jose, my wife and I attended Grace Bible College of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we do have convictions about some dispensational relationships in God's Word. You stated that this crowd has been with us a long time. That's in quotation marks. And that's right, and I'd like to give a little background. When I was first called to the church of the Open Door, and that was the first Sunday in January 1949. So you see, I have a long history with it. On that very Sunday, the leading hyperdispensational teacher in Southern California at that time, he brought his gang up to the church of the open door, and when the church was dismissed, he passed out, and his followers passed out to our congregation a long yellow sheet of paper denouncing me and also Dr. Charles Fuller. In fact, the heading of the article was Charlie Fuller, Vernon McGee, and Balaam's Ass. Now, that wasn't very nice to begin with. I called Dr. Fuller that afternoon and asked him, had he seen that? And he said, yes, somebody had told him about it. And he said he paid no attention to that sort of thing. And I said, well, this was done right at the entrance to our church as the people came out afterward. And I said, I do resent it a little. I said, they put in the title, Charlie Fuller and Vernon McGee and Balaam's Ash. And they put me right next to Balaam's ass. They at least removed you one person away from him. 
but they really went after me. And I can tell you that very candidly, from that day on, they became a nuisance. Periodically, they appeared at our congregation after service, and they would give out these sheets, but they'd want to argue with people. And of course, some people were not quite prepared to argue with them. Now, may I say to you that the argument that he had in that yellow sheet, that very Sunday night, I answered it, and a great many people, we got it on the radio, we'd be answering that night, and it gave me, for my first Sunday night at the Church of the Open Door, practically a full church, and there are 4,000 seats in that church, and by the way, we appreciated, actually, what they did and filling it for the first Sunday night for us. And after that, this man went on the radio, and I was called by several people and told that he was taking the eighth chapter of Romans that I had taught on the radio, and he evidently had taken it off for the radio, and he would run a verse of Romans, and then what I said about it, and then he would attempt to answer it. And so the manager of the station called me up and said that he had been made aware that this is what this man was doing, and if I wanted, he'd take him off the air because he had no right to do that, and they did permit that in those days on the station, so he'd take him off. And I said, oh, my, no, don't take him off. I said, he helps my attendance by that. He's the best advertisement I've got. When he puts on his radio what I say, and I'm delighted about that. And then people come, and quite a few that were in his organization, they actually left him and joined the Church of the Open Door. And may I continue to read in this letter so I can answer what he has to say. You stated that this crowd has been with us a long time, and that they believe that the church started with Acts 28. And by the way, that's what this group believed. The reason they got around that was that most of them before believed it started actually back where this man says it began on in the 8th chapter of Acts, but they don't believe in baptism, that baptism is not for today at all. And yet Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said that he didn't know how many he did baptize, but he had baptized ties some over at Corinth, so apparently Paul went in for water baptism. And so anyway, they had moved to the 28th chapter of Acts, and they couldn't get in trouble with that because we have no record after that. It's just what they wanted to make of it. And this part in now says, in fact, we know very few who take that position. Well, I knew quite a few of them, my brother, let me tell you that. Most believe that historically it began in Acts 9 with Paul's conversion. That is actually where this crowd began, by the way, but they moved from that position. May we sincerely suggest that you get your facts straight before speaking so derogatorily about fellow believers. We would have thought you were above the tactics of some we could name who have been very caustic with their criticisms over the years of ultra-dispensationalists. You see, they really have three names, uh, ultra-dispensationalists, a hyper-dispensationalist, 
And then the name I gave them was super dispensationalist. And then they go on. I'm going to read from his letter again. Regarding water baptism, which could be said, but we'll just comment about a few points. Even though Bible teachers have explained away Ephesians 4, 5, at least to their own satisfaction, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, did distress the one baptism, which can only be that of being baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit, and I agree certainly with that. For a full treatment of the subject, we refer you to, and they refer me to a writer and a book. It says, you know, it's curious that you and others cast aspersions on grace believers because of their stand on water baptism and when the church began and make them out to be some kind of oddball sect. Yet the Quakers don't practice water baptism either. Do you have the same demeaning thoughts of them? They never got together and gave out literature in front of my church. So I saw no need of attacking them. They were peaceful people. And as long as they wanted to be peaceful and not argumentative, I'm willing to be that way. I didn't start the fight, my brother. I didn't go in front of his church. In fact, I didn't even know where it was and don't to this good day. Need I mention that one of the larger evangelical free churches, Bethesda Free Church of Minneapolis under so-and-so, doesn't either, holding to the distinctive ministry and message of Paul. Have we forgotten that the late M.R. DeHaan was a super dispensationalist, and he was not. I happen to know Dr. DeHaan. He preached for me many times at the Church of the Open Door. I've been with him in conferences in days gone by when I was a young preacher, and he was a much older man. I looked up to him, and he was not that, I can assure you. I understand he stopped teaching about the mystery of Christ, though, and some maintain the heat from his colleagues got too much for him. No, I think he saw the truth of dispensationalism is the reason. And he says, I think you need to be reminded that grace believers are, for the most part, gracious, loving, sincere followers of Jesus Christ. And may I say, I have not found that to be true in the past. And are avid students of the word in the spirit of Acts 17.11 and deserve better treatment from outstanding men of the word such as yourself. And then he gives me a P.S. I would hope to hear a correction over the air concerning this to set the record straight, at least whether or not you agree with our dispensational position on the body of Christ. May I say I do not agree with your position because I think it's an extreme position of dispensationalism and has brought it into disrepute in certain sections. I know several men today do not mention dispensations. One man on the radio, he told me very candidly, says, I never mention dispensationalism anymore because it's so controversial. Now, let me say this to you. I am a dispensationalist. It's the dispensations that I found in the Schofield Reference Bible first Bible ever given to me, and it was the first thing that opened the Word of God to me. I am a dispensationalist, and I'm not ashamed of being that, but brother, I'm no hyper-dispensationalist. 
The church began on the day of Pentecost. That's so clear and evident that the day before Pentecost, he wasn't there, and the day afterward, he was there indwelling a body of believers. Pentecost was the Bethlehem of the Holy Spirit. That's when he came and began the forming the body of Christ. Now, I'm not going to make a correction because I personally do not feel that I'm wrong. I feel that I'm a dispensationalist. I'm not hyper-dispensational. I disagree with you entirely on that. And I've had a long history of running in with these people. If you say that they're quite sincere, I think they're sincere, and that they're loving and gracious, they just haven't been that way to me, brother. And I go back to 1949. And from that day down to the present time, they have been very argumentative. They've even come into the church. When I had Dr. Harry Ironside there one time, they came in as a group, and afterward they tried to straighten out Dr. Harry Ironside. One young fellow went down and said, Harry, I want to get you straight on the dispensation. I can't imagine a young fellow that would say that to Dr. Harry Ironside. I looked up to him. In fact, I never called him Harry, and I was a personal friend of him. And this young buck came down, and may I say to you, I have not found that you're a loving group of people. I've found that you're anything but that. And I also discovered that you're not very much interested in missions, and that disturbs me a great deal. I have found out that in our Through the Bible program, where we're going now in 26 languages, which we never dreamed we'd be able to do. And we're reaching out to the world today. And I do not know a hyper-dispensationalist that's ever given a dime to this program. Yet many of them write, as you have written, and say, we listen to your teaching, we were blessed by them, and all that sort of thing, but not interested in missions. Now, I hope I've treated your letter fairly and squarely. That is from my viewpoint, at least. Our next question comes to us from a listener in Columbus, Ohio, who says, I was amazed to hear you say that anyone who speaks in tongues is confused and that it is satanic. What a dangerous, terrible thing to say. When you don't know anything about a subject, it is best to let it alone. You are in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, because when you get the genuine Holy Spirit, you will speak in tongues as the Spirit of God gives the utterance. That is a known fact. The first church at the day of Pentecost spoke in tongues. May I say to you that there's one thing that I hate above everything else, and that is to be misunderstood. I try to speak as plainly as I can and as simply as I can, and yet I find that people just simply misunderstood what I said, and I think people sometimes, when they've heard one thing, they don't hear anything else, but they add to it, especially if it's something that they disagree with. Now, I have said that I felt those who speak in tongues, many of them are confused, I believe that. But I don't think I said that it is all satanic. In fact, the matter is, I don't believe it's all satanic at all. When the tongues movement first broke out here in Southern California, a Baptist preacher up in Oxnard, California, he went into it and he stayed in it for a while and then got his eyes open and he got out of it. And he came down 
to hear me when I ran a series on it on Sunday night. In fact, the matter is, he brought his church down, and we were speaking on this question of speaking in tongues. And he came to me the first night. He says, now, you say it's psychological. He says, now, I've been in this thing, and I want to say to you that I believe it's satanic. Now, that's the thing I think I said before, or I said that there are some that call it satanic. I have never said myself it's satanic. There may be some cases that that's what it would be. And I do know that in some of the heathen religions that they're speaking in tongues. And some missionaries have told me that people who did it definitely were demon-possessed. Now, that is something else. I want to come back and say to you that I believe that some people, like that Baptist preacher, they were just confused and they went into it. And I feel the same way today about it. I find that even on the TV where I see a great deal of it, it takes a little while to work it up. I notice that they can't keep the level of the excitement going all the time, and it drops down at times and becomes just a little boresome, to tell the truth. And I've followed this from the very beginning. The first outbreak was here in Southern California of the recent, the first time it took place was out here on Azusa Street, and that was long before my day. It was some people who'd come from Kansas City, Kansas. The one I'm speaking of is when an Episcopal rector and some lady, and I forget their names, I actually met them. They began the first movement, and it swept across the country, and it didn't last very long. It was called the Glossalia movement, and that's the tongues movement. And now they call it a charismatic. May I say to you, charismatic means all the gifts, not just tongues. I believe the charismatic movement that Christians have gifts, but I don't believe they have the gift of tongues. That's glossalia, and that's what it ought to be called if it's just a tongues movement. May I say to you, on the day of Pentecost, they spoke in tongues. You're right. And in the early church, there was a great deal of it. After the church was established, tongues is one of the gifts that went out. I think it went out with the apostles. There were several apostolic gifts that they had. The apostles could heal. And not only could the apostles heal, they could raise the dead. But there's nobody around doing that today. And if they are, they certainly haven't been able to prove their point. So that this movement that you're talking about, I'm not acquainted with it. I want to say to you that I've been in Southern California a long time, and I'm pretty well acquainted with the movements that have taken place out here. And I'm not speaking without some authority. Just because they were in the early church doesn't mean that that's a gift that's in the church today. Actually, I think there were several gifts that the early church had that are not in the church today. Prophecy was one of them, and that has long since ceased. And I think all these like that, these spectacular, sensational gifts, all disappeared with the apostles. And that today, it's the simple preaching of the Word of God, and that the Holy Spirit is the one that regenerates you, makes you a child of God, and you are indwelt by the Spirit of God, and you are given a gift, and you can exercise that gift in the church.
That was the purpose of gifts, was to be exercised in the church. Read very carefully 1 Corinthians 12. And so may I say to you, your criticism of me and accusations are not really accurate at all. And I recognize your zeal for what you believe and all that sort of thing. And I have great respect today for a great many of these folk. In fact, the man that headed up the Life Institute out here, which was a training for Pentecostals, Amy McPherson began it. The man that she had as her head of the school and the one who taught theology. He and I became very good friends. May I say to you, I never convinced him we're not real, but he did come to the place where he felt that it was not a gift for today and that great deal of it was just put on. He did believe that there are certain healings that took place when he was a younger man. He said some of them were genuine, but most of them actually were not. But speaking in tongues, he felt there was something that got to the place where it was nothing in the world but just an exercise in futility to tell the truth. So the things I'm saying, I don't want to say to hurt anyone, but I do think that we need to speak out and tell the truth today. And I have quite a few friends that are Pentecostal friends. I don't insult them by going in and running down what they believe. I just try to preach a simple gospel. That's all. And that's the important thing. And I thank God that they believe it. And they're saved by the death and resurrection of Christ. Tongues has nothing in the world to do with it. Our final question comes from a listener in Lexington, North Carolina. He writes, Why did Jesus quote the commandments to the ruler in Luke chapter 18, verses 8 through 23? I probably ought to turn and read Luke 18, 18. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is, God. You see, he's making the young man face up to it. He's called the Lord Jesus good. And the Lord Jesus says, There's no one good but God. Therefore, if you see goodness in me, it's God. Actually, the Lord Jesus was the only good man that's been on this earth. And this young ruler saw that. Now, the Lord Jesus turned the commandments on him. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. He was a fine young man, you see. And now the Lord Jesus tells him the next step that he could take, and that, the important thing, was not for him to get rid of his material wealth, but to follow the Lord Jesus. And where would following him lead? It lead eventually to the cross, of course. Now, let me go on with this here. According to Matthew 9.13, he said, I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Is this why he dealt with these two men as he did? The Lord Jesus, when the Pharisees were there and the publicans, and you'll recall he gave the parable about two men went up to the temple to pray, and only the publican is the one that had to stand afar off. He was shut out. Now, 
this part, it says in Luke 18, 13, we have the prayer of the publican. Could this be the same man spoken of in Luke 19, 1 and 10? Zacchaeus. I believe that. That's been my position now for many years. That the publican that stood afar off. In other words, what he's really saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He's saying, make a mercy seat for me, a publican, a sinner to come to. And I think the Lord Jesus went to his house that night to tell him he was on the way to Jerusalem to make a mercy seat for him. Now, according to Matthew 9, 13, he said, I'm not come to call the righteous. Is this why he dealt with these two men as he did? And that's probably the reason that he did. I think you're quite accurate in that. That's a very good distinction you've made. As we close today's broadcast, we want to remind you that we have a number of helpful materials to assist you in your own understanding of God's Word. Many of these items are available in our resource catalog, which you can receive when you call anytime, leaving your voicemail request for our catalog along with your name, address, and the call letters of this station. Or shop our online bookstore. Today's broadcast is available on CD. Maybe you heard an answer that you know a friend or loved one needs to hear. Well, If you can contact one of our service operators for purchasing information, we can get that right out to you. If you prefer, you can also download the audio of this program without charge by going to our website. By the way, our archives hold the past five years of our question and answer program, so if you missed one, that would be the place to go to get caught up. Be sure to join us this week as we continue Dr. McGee's five-year journey through the whole Word of God, book by book and chapter by chapter. If you'd like to be added to our mailing list for notes and outlines and our monthly newsletter, you can do so when you write or call. To contact our offices, call 1-800-65-BIBLE Monday through Thursday from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Time or write to questions and answers in the U.S., Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109, in Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1, or visit us online at www.ttb.org. This is Steve Schwetz for the Through the Bible Radio Network, praying that God will answer all your questions and solve all your problems. Jesus made it This program's been brought to you by the faithful friends and supporters of the worldwide ministry of Through the Bible Radio Network.